Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, you'll be listening to PSY 342, Psychology of the Exceptional Child. I hope you listen and enjoy. This is Class 6, and we are on half of Session 3, sorry, and we're looking at suspected causes or etiologies of our autism. Um, there are a lot of views out there over the past, and we're going to look at a couple of incorrect ones because you may hear these. Um, you want to know that they're outdated. Um, one of the biggest things for a long time that we believed was that there were mothers who were called refrigerator mothers. And again, mothers were the typical caregivers. The thought was that, that because these child had withdrawn emotionally and withdrawn in their communication, that it was because their mothers had been so cold to them, like a refrigerator, and had just shut them out. And what we were doing is kind of walking in at, you know, age three and seeing a mom who was sort of detached from a child. And we assumed that the mom created the child. Right, but probably what more likely happened is we had a mom who really, really wanted to have a close relationship with her child. But she picked that baby up and the baby stiffened up and screamed. All right, and over that just happened over and over and over again. And she just had to learn to kind of detach in order not to have this hurt as much as it did. And so we really were putting uh, a lot of blame on these moms, and it caused tremendous harm to these families. Others proposed that there were biomedical causes and, you know, kind of internal causes. The main biomedical cause was that there would be abnormalities in the brain development. That has not actually totally been ruled out. There are some views still that say um, the brain did not quite develop um, completely normally, it's, you know, mostly normally, but there were a few small abnormalities there. Um, that the brain growth rates were different during early development. That's usually considered um, utero development, you know, that when we're doing prenatal development that we're talking about here. Um, neurochemistry looks at the different biochemicals in the brain and looks to see that, it, you know, if those neurotransmitters are um, set at the right level. Genetic factors have been proposed, um, generally not inherited factors because um, you don't oftentimes see um, a lot of people in the spectrum disorder um, get married having kids, but there are a lot of families that have more than one child um, who have autism. Now, it is possible to have identical twins and have one have autism and the other not, um, but more likely you would see identical twins and they would both have it, or you would have siblings and they would both have it. Um, those twin studies have really looked at, you know, looking at the difference in environments and looking at the difference in um, um, genetics. We've used both identical twins and fraternal twins in those. Um, there's definitely a greater risk of seeing autism if you have a sibling or a twin who has it. Vaccinations have been proposed, and this has been a real problem. Um, this has been ruled out. We don't have mercury in our um, vaccinations anymore. Now, you've probably heard of a of movement that's going on in our country where a lot of folks really firmly believe that, you know, getting their child's uh, immunizations is going to cause their child to have autism. It's more of a timing issue. It's more like the time that you would get the vaccination is oftentimes about the time autism 
would likely kick in if it does and it may be that they have a predisposition for autism and you know something out of their normal routine um, frequently kicks it in but it's not the the medication in the vaccination that causes it but because we've had so many folks not get their child vaccinated we are seeing a resurgent um, of a lot of these types of things that we had pretty much eradicated in at least America, like measles are back and mumps. Um, and it's a little scary because we're starting to see children die from getting the measles. Um, there are a lot of kids who are compromised with their immune system and can't take their vaccinations. Um, like my great niece who has leukemia, um, she, she wouldn't be able to, to take the vaccination. So, um, they live in a lot of fear that she will get around a child who has not been vaccinated and, you know, develop something that her body will not be able to fight off. But um, that actually has been ruled out and there, there is no reason to assume that that causes autism. Um, when we do the evaluation, we usually do do this very early on. We try to get this uh, at least by three. Um, the latest is usually four, and oftentimes it's as early as one and a half or two um, when we're working with these children and, and doing the evaluation. Um, we give a lot of the same tasks that we would give to children who have intellectual disabilities, um, also to some who would have the multiple disabilities. Uh, we try to focus on tasks that aren't real heavy in communication um, because remember there's a real struggle um, to communicate with these children so we have to be a lot of these are going to be sort of more of your um, developmental kinds of tasks to see if they're capable of maybe stacking three blocks up um, you know pointing to a, a picture and showing you where somebody's nose is and things like that um, so here's our criteria we do need to assess the speech and the language skills because remember communication is one of the big, big areas of concern here. Um, we want to test where they are academically. Now, if they're preschoolers, uh, which many of these are, we won't expect much in terms of academic achievement. But we do want to know things like can they, you know, do their colors. Um, that would be kind of the level of academia we would be talking about with these younger kids. Um, a cognitive functioning would be some level of IQ test that we, we might give. And we may have to pull out a, um, like a child, uh, an infant um, developmental test for this kind of thing. Um, we want to know medically where they are and if there's any physical issues that might impact um, their process uh, of, de of developing. Um, and there are some checklists. There's um, one in particular called the Autism Diagnostic Interview, uh, which has been revised, and so it's the ADIR now, and it's a checklist to you interview the parents or the teacher to kind of get a feel for where the child is and what the child is doing. All right, we do um, design our program specifically for each child. Um, remember, they are gonna be on an IEP. Um, we're going to bring that functional behavioral assessment or applied behavior analysis back. And you remember that involves our ABCs of behavior, the antecedent for A, the behavior for B, the consequences for C. Um, we've talked about that before, but we're trying to see what, what antecedents trigger certain behaviors and how those behaviors are being uh, kept into play through reinforcement. Um, we want to describe what behaviors they are actually engaging in that are areas of concern. 
And we take that information that we gain um, in our FBA or ABA, and we put that into our IEP as we're setting up the goals for the child. Um, we're trying to, you know, really work on, we are going to work on these um, particular behaviors that are a problem. So obviously if they, um, you know, anytime they hear a loud noise, if they go and they um, begin to bite themselves, that's something we need to work on. We want to focus on those kind of skills and hopefully eventually work up to some more academic skills. What we want to do is teach these um, children some alternative behaviors to engage in instead of the things like the aggression or the uh, SIB or anything that you know would be very much um, non-helpful for the child and might even hurt them. All right, so remember, we really want to look to see if there are some strengths, and um, there are some strengths that sometimes we're going to see uh, when we see children who have autism spectrum disorder, um, and it, that helps us. I mean, if we have an area of strength, we can build on those strengths and sort of design our curriculum around those strengths. Um, obviously, one thing we may likely see is that they can focus their attention on something they're very interested in, something even with a lot of detail. Remember, they oftentimes ha have that one thing that they really care about, and they've put so much time and energy into that. So if we can take that ability that they have and shift it over to something else that might be more helpful to them, um, that can be very useful. Some of them are amazingly good at things like math or science, where they aren't so language-oriented. Um, particularly if they have maybe a savant in math, they're going to do really, really well, um, even in some higher-level math where you might be uh, a little surprised that they can do it. We talked about mnemonic strategies already when we were talking about learning disabilities, um, where you're using different kind of methods to help a child remember information. Uh, things like taking the first letter of each word and making a sentence. <clears throat> and that can be something that may help these children um, be able to learn. Another thing we're going to really need to work on with our children with autism is their social skills. They're, they're almost always deficient here. And we may actually have to do a lot of role-playing practice, um, just go over it and over it and over it on how to develop the proper conversational skills and put some instructional supports in for them. Teach them how to have friendships and help other children want to be friends with them. Whatever activities are going on, we want these children included. <coughs> and we pair them up with a peer buddy, someone who's very patient to interact with them. And want to make sure their peers know why this child is being included in their classroom so that they will be welcoming and open and tolerant of, of this individual. Early intervention is also really, really important because remember this is something that kicks in really, really young. So some of the types of approaches are going to be using the applied behavior analysis, those techniques that we talked about with the ABCs of behavior, those are used even in preschool. Incidental teaching is something, a lot of these kids don't learn incidentally. Um, your typical child does. Um, they just notice, all right, what you're doing, and they begin to mimic that. So you'll see these children who are these little preschoolers liking to play, pushing the vacuum, you know, a toy vacuum cleaner around or 
a little iron. They'll play like they're ironing because you're ironing. Um, these children who have um, issues with the autism spectrum, you usually don't pick things up like that. You have to actually teach them everything, but you can try. And you can go into a natural environment where, you know, you're doing your normal day-to-day -day things and kind of show them um, how to do things, and hopefully they'll be starting to pick things up. All right, we really want to work on, obviously, our communication skills um, in this earlier years. Um, we don't expect them to be, um, you know, maybe the most gifted in communication, but certainly we want some communication while they're at least two or three. We may need to work on sensory processing if this is something that they really are struggling with. Uh, remember, their motor skills may be very weak, and we may need to work on that. There's a lot of times a physical therapist, um, possibly an occupational therapist involved in some motor planning for these children to kind of help them um, be able to function well in their motor skills. And then shared affect is, is like, you know, laughing when your caregiver laughs, um, you know, being sad when they're sad, and we kind of have the same feelings um, as those who are around us. Here's kind of where most of our kids are. This is a little different from what you might normally see. Um, well, we'll see. Let's just kind of go down to the bottom. Um, and we're looking at 80 to 100% of the time that they're in regular ed. There's about 39% of them there. All right, if you go up to the orange, um, you drop down to 40 to 79% of the time. In regular ed, you got about 18% there. 38% um, are in regular ed from 0 to 39 of the time and you know nine percent or somewhere else like at a special school designed for children who are have autism spectrum disorder and there's actually a good many of those out there when it comes to accommodations we may have to make some accommodations for these individuals um we need to give a lot of reinforcement for them to do any kind of assessment. They don't quite understand why they need to do these things. And so we may need to give a lot of feedback on how well they're doing that we might not do for a typical child. Um, they're also most of the time going to do better if they know the person who is providing the assessment or giving them the assessment. They don't do well with anything out of their normal routine. So a strange person, they don't do well. Um, so that familiar examiner will take their anxiety level down and also help lower the stress levels that usually come up for even a typical child when they're getting tested, and that can be kind of key. All right, so when we work with these children, we want to make sure we are careful in how we word things, get those idioms out, um, be very clear and logical, don't speak abstractly. Make sure that your speech is logical and not confusing break your test down into one piece at a time it's very hard for this child to you know take in large segments at once so first it's let's do this and then we'll come back and get directions on what to do next if there is a change in your normal routine you want to let kids know this way ahead of time and start letting them become prepared for the fact that today is not going to be a typical day today we're going to do something very very different um, really want to minimize um, any kind of distractions in our sensory world. Remember, these are very hard for our children to take. So we want to, um, you know, get the visual distractions down. You don't want a lot of stuff up on the, the walls or hanging from the ceilings or taped in the windows or on the floor like you see in a lot of classrooms. That's not really good for these kids. Um, you don't want a lot of loud noises. Um, you want to put things quieter for them. 
Um, if you are going to do group work, you have to be really, really careful here. These children don't work well with others most of the time because their social skills are weak. Other kids um, may be very upset about this, and you're going to have to really, you know, make sure um, that the group that this child is put in are, are you know, going to be children who are willing to be kind um, and help them to work together, and you're probably going to need to spend some time with them. All right, when it comes to diversity, um, Autism Society of America says there are no racial, ethnic, or social boundaries. Autism occurs very equally among all groups. Um, it is not a cultural phenomenon. It occurs in all parts of the world. Um, we don't see that there's any characteristics of parents that are causing autism spectrum disorder. So it's, it's you know, not a parent who has um, you know, aggressive issues or anything like that. Um, all types of families um, have had children who have autism spectrum disorder. Technology's been great. Um, there's some great high-tech technologies that the uh, augmentative devices we mentioned earlier are really good for these kids if they just are um, not going to be able to communicate orally. Um, many times they are, are going to be able to push a button and have the machine talk for them. Um, there are some voice output aids. These are things like a calculator that talks, um, things like that that could be helpful for these children. Um, there are some low-tech aids that are, a lot of times teachers can actually make these kinds of things or, or you psychologists can make them as well um, using signs or pictures in order to communicate. So you know, if it's lunchtime, you might have a picture of a hamburger and another picture, I'll just use hot dog, and you'll show that to them and let them point um, to what they would actually like to have for, for lunch. Um, that can be really at least a beginning way for them to communicate. 